So I think I might be a terrible blogger. Of course, there's the usual thing about keeping current with my blog, finding the time to get something written on a regular basis. But more than that, I think the problem is that my blog postings aren't very exciting. They're thoughtful, I hope, or interesting, at least to me. But I'm not sure they're controversial enough. Or rather, I don't love controversy enough. Because when I look around at the actually successful bloggers, the ones whose blogs end up linked to the Huffington Post or firing up the virtual airwaves, I see that often there are people who seem to thrive on controversy. Their blogs or their columns or their op-eds seem to be all about taking a stand <clears throat> with a capital S and why their stand is so very different and, of course, so very much better than the stand of those with whom they disagree. I think I might not be much of a stand kind of person. Maybe I'm more a sit-and-talk kind of person. <laughs> Apparently, I don't even really like to read about great big stands with capital S's. <clears throat> As I began to prepare for this platform, which I had decided would be about fundamentalism in its many forms and the division that it creates, I realized that, unfortunately, in my years of study and work, I had neglected to actually read any fundamentalists. I scoured my bookshelves and found that I also didn't own books by any fundamentalists. And, of course, I didn't feel like buying any because who wants to give a bunch of money to fundamentalists? <clears throat> you can see my problem. Luckily, I was able to raid Mary's bookshelves, who, although not particularly fond of fundamentalists, is apparently just better read than I am. And there's always the Internet, which may actually have a special niche as a place to read and write from a fundamentalist perspective. But before I get too far, what do I mean by fundamentalism? The definition I usually hear for fundamentalism is in reference to religious groups who take a given text, the Bible or the Quran, for instance, to be literally true, each word carrying the full authority of the God who authored it. But fundamentalism, especially in America, carries other implications as well. Dr. Grant Wacker, a professor of the history of religion in America at Duke University Divinity School, divides fundamentalism into generic fundamentalism and historic fundamentalism, with a capital H and a capital F, lots of capitals in this kind of work, which arose in America in the early 20th century. Generic fundamentalism, he writes, quote, refers to a global religious impulse, particularly evident in the 20th century, that seeks to recover and publicly institutionalize aspects of the past that modern life has obscured, end quote. Historic fundamentalism, on the other hand, quote, shared all of the assumptions of generic fundamentalism, but also reflected several concerns particular to the religious setting of the United States at the turn of the century, and he means the last century. Some of those concerns, or the last, last, which is it? The 20th century, when it, when, in 1900, that's what we're talking about. Some of those concerns stemmed from broad changes in the culture, such as, this is all Dr. Wacker, such as growing awareness of world religions, the teaching of human evolution, and above all, the rise of biblical higher criticism, end quote. The basic tenets of American Christian fundamentalism can be traced to a series of booklets published between 1910 and 1915 called, not surprisingly, The Fundamentals. 
Many of the ideas in those booklets are still shared by American Christian fundamentalists today. But of course, fundamentalism is not just American, nor is it just Christian. Much airtime is given these days to Islamists, also referred to as Muslim extremists or Muslim fundamentalists, and the ties between their religious beliefs and their political and violent actions. There are fundamentalist Hindus and Jews, and there is a growing group of what I would call fundamentalist atheists or secularists. Now, I know I have to be a little careful here. Some of you certainly use the word atheist to describe yourself and your worldview. Others use agnostic, others humanist, others theist, and some would say you have a Buddhist practice or, a Jew or Jewish roots, but this is not really a platform about the many kinds of religious diversity in our community. My guess, though, is that none of you would call yourselves fundamentalist. Of course, fundamentalist may be a label more frequently applied by someone else. It is a label that I'd use to describe one of the authors I read for this platform. Sam Harris, who wrote The End of Faith in 2004, writes from a very strong anti-religion message. His atheism, it seems to me, extends beyond personal belief into a desire to change the beliefs of others, one of the hallmarks of fundamentalism, according to Dr. Wacker, whom I quoted earlier. In one much-debated line in The End of Faith, which I understand Harris later worked to explain rather differently than I read it, Harris writes, quote, some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing them, end quote. Now, Harris would say, I think, that he is merely responding to the fundamentalism of religion itself. And my sense is that Harris sees most religion as fundamentalist at its core, unable to truly be anything else. Harris locates a great deal of violence in religious belief, not without evidence, certainly, but unlike many other thinkers, he despairs of our human ability to move beyond religion as a strict and dangerous dividing line. Intolerance, he writes, is intrinsic to every creed. And later, I hope to show that the very ideal of religious tolerance, born of the notion that every human being should be free to believe whatever he wants about God, is one of the principal forces driving us slowly toward the abyss. End quote. Harris doesn't really believe in the idea of religious moderates. As he writes, the moderation we see among non-fundamentalists is not some sign that faith itself has evolved. It is rather the product of the many hammer blows of modernity that have, ex have exposed certain tenets of faith to doubt. End quote. This idea reinforces for me a sense that I often have that the fundamentalists of many stripes seem to be talking mostly to each other in some kind of ongoing dialogue that leaves out at least half the country. That's certainly what the authors Robert Putnam and David Campbell seem to be saying in their impressively sized tome, I mean, it's really, it's about this big, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. Based on their extensive Faith Matters survey of religion in American life and chock full of graphs and statistical data, the book essentially posits that while America becomes more and more religiously diverse, including a growing no-religion sector and a strong fundamentalist sector, we also remain remarkably tolerant of each other. The book has lots of interesting information about what kind of neighbors people of different faiths are and generational differences in faith community membership 
But the big message seems to be this relatively hopeful one, that despite our differences, we actually manage to get along pretty well. So why does the media make it look as though we fight so much? The more I delved into the layers of fundamentalism, the more convinced I became that America's media environment carries at least a partial responsibility for the culture of division. But of course, it's one thing to blame the media, because after all, someone is consuming that media, and I have a feeling that someone may be us, the American people. In fact, we're not just consuming it, we're creating it. I've had my own run-ins with folks who I would say actually cross the line from fundamentalist to just plain crazy. The members of the Westboro Baptist Church, the church that pickets funerals and other public events to get out their message that God is punishing America for allowing homosexuality. Mary and the West staff, in fact, are becoming experts in standing in witness against the Westboro Baptist Church having done so with me in front of the D.C. courthouse on the day same-sex marriage licenses were first available, and then with Melody in front of her son's high school when the church was picketing the marching bands honoring of a lesbian student who took her own life. Both times I was proud of us for being there, and both times I wondered about how these very few people get so much airtime, and if it might not be better to just ignore them. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad we didn't, but it's hard sometimes to figure out the best response. And then there are the times when I find that people I'm actually associated with are the ones spreading what I would consider to be a fundamentalist or at least divisive message. Actually, my commentary on this experience was the one time I think my blog even hinted at controversy, and it garnered my only passionate and slightly confrontational comment so far. I was really kind of excited. <laughs> it was a well-written comment, very nice. I was writing, this was a couple of months ago, about the recent ad campaign from the American Humanist Association, a campaign that featured passages from both the Bible and the Quran. As I wrote on my blog after the campaign, my initial reaction when I, when I had just heard about the campaign shows my naivete. I assumed that the AHA was going to highlight passages from these texts that showed the arc of humanism through world religions. Passage, doesn't that sound nice? Passages that honored the inherent worth of every person and the connection of each person to her neighbor, and then show how humanism has so much in common with its more traditional religious cousins, how humanism has been a part of world religions for all time. Maybe I will write that campaign someday. The AHA did not. <laughs> <clears throat> Actually, the campaign they did do took violent or negative passages from the texts and juxtaposed them with wonderful and life-affirming quotes from famous humanists, essentially asking the question, which is better? Now, that may be an interesting question. Obviously, many of the people in this room have at some point identified that humanism is, in fact, better for them. But I found the spirit of the campaign the divisive quality, the worst possible quotes taken out of context as though no humanist has ever said something terrible, to be just unappealing. Actually, it made me kind of angry, hence the blog post. Representatives from the AHA said it was intended to be thought-provoking and welcoming to those who were on the fence between traditional religion and humanism. My guess is that it was really intended to be shocking, 
and therefore to be featured in newspaper articles and TV spots and talked about much more than they could afford to actually air the ad. And in that, it succeeded. The ad campaign that I wanted to write about how many commonalities we have with traditional religion would not have gotten that much press attention. It also wouldn't have appealed to my one blog commenter who found it was, felt it was important to highlight the differences, that the differences were integral to what humanism was. And I have some sympathy for this point of view and for the impulse toward definition, toward certainty, that I think is behind fundamentalism in many of its forms. Our world is constantly changing. I don't just mean over decades or across a century, I mean in microseconds, in the onslaught of information we receive all the time from our computers and our phones and the advertisements on buses. There is something appealing, I think, in knowing where you stand, capital S, in feeling that you have a people who believe what you do and that you are sure about those beliefs. My guess is that that sense of security is behind many people's embrace of fundamentalism. Even being on one side of a divide can feel secure, since it's clear you aren't going to fall into the divide if you aren't trying to cross it at all. Uncertainty and openness is a much less comfortable position. Or put another way, if you try to build a bridge across the divide, there is always the chance you will fall off during construction. There's also just the chance that no one will hear you. In America these days, it often seems that the angriest voices are the loudest. Another indication that fundamentalists, those sure about their opinions, are just shouting at each other while the rest of us look befuddled. That silent majority idea was brought home to me this past October when I, along with many of you, I know, attended the John Stewart Stephen Colbert rally on the Mall. We actually tried to organize a West group to go together, but as I understand it, none of us were able to find each other, although I discovered from Facebook later on that literally dozens of us had actually been there. We couldn't see each other, of course, because the crowds were so massive. Crowds of people wandering the mall because, I think, they wanted to add their voice to something that didn't involve screaming. There were plenty of questions, and valid ones, about what the point of the rally was, and my guess is that there were as many answers as people there. Some folks were obviously interested mostly in being silly, and therefore wore giant banana outfits. And, but the signs I liked the most said things like, it's hard to hear you when you're shouting, or, this was my favorite, take a deep breath, America. The idea seemed to be that we didn't need to buy into the political divide that gets the most airtime. And I would say that the lesson for us today is that we don't need to buy into the religious divide either, or at least that we ought to take the option of considering it more closely. So what is our role as religious progressives or religious humanists or secular people who have somehow found ourselves in what looks an awful lot like a congregation? I'm hoping that I have used at least one word that you might identify with there. And if not, take a moment, add yours silently in your head. <laughs> Ethical culture has, I would argue, some pretty clear values ourselves. The inherent worth of every person, our responsibility to lead ethical lives, and the importance of doing that in ethical relationship by bringing out the unique potential in each person and in ourselves. To me, that sounds like a bit of a mandate to be bridge builders, to make our own ad campaigns, if we have them, about relationship 
and how to understand each other better. I actually think that we are pretty good at doing that with religious moderates or other religious progressives. But Sam Harris would argue that those people don't really count, so I'll take up his challenge. How are we doing it in conversation with religious fundamentalists, with Christian fundamentalists? Harris isn't actually the only one who thinks that fundamentalists have to be acknowledged as part of the conversation. While I was exploring his book, which you'll remember is called The End of Faith, I was also reading a relatively new book by Harvard professor Harvey Cox, conveniently titled The Future of Faith. Cox writes from a Christian perspective about the potential that he sees for Christianity to move beyond beliefs, rigid dogmas or creeds, and into what he calls an age of the spirit. Cox thinks that for Christianity to be a positive force in the world, it needs to lose its focus on orthodoxy, on fundamentalism, and instead allow for the movement of faith. Cox argues that faith is, about, is more about experience and community, as he puts it, about awe, love, and wonder, than about right belief. And he thinks that Christianity is already moving that way, especially in Latin America and Asia, but also here in the United States. In his opening paragraph, he writes, quote, fundamentalism, the bane of the 20th century, is dying. Doesn't that sound kind of nice, actually? <laughs> the future of faith is a great read, especially if you have any interest in the future of Christianity and its interaction with other faiths. But what I especially liked about the book was that Cox, who is himself in an interfaith marriage, admitted that interfaith work was pretty easy for the moderates. Getting a progressive Christian to talk with a progressive Muslim, and I would add to a progressive humanist, too, is a cakewalk. It's getting each of them to talk to their fundamentalist cousins that gets tricky. As he puts it, what dialogically oriented Christian, as in interest, a Christian interested in dialogue, I had to look that up, what dialogically oriented Christian would not rather spend an afternoon with the Dalai Lama than with Pat Robertson? But Cox argues that interfaith dialogue has to include fundamentalists. And he's walked the talk, too, bringing Jerry Falwell and faculty from Pat Robertson's university to Harvard. He doesn't say that they were particularly great conversations, but at least they were conversations. Which is where I so often end up thinking the answer can be found in talking, which is really good news, actually, for ethical culturists not known for their love of silent retreats. Not in shocking ad campaigns or in angry op-eds or in all capital letters blog posts, but in conversation that tries to see similarities, even among those who seem at first to be so different that the divide gapes wide between us. Actually, there is one blogger, and now a columnist for the Washington Post, who is doing this kind of talking. I like to pretend that Wes can take credit for him because he's actually the nephew of Bruce Johansson, a Wes member, who I'm sure was instrumental in him coming into his own. I met the nephew, Chris Stedman, last year when he was visiting D.C. and Bruce thought we might enjoy knowing each other. I came away from our lunch thinking that it would be really fun to say that I had met him in a few years when he was super famous and I was standing outside a bookstore waiting for him to autograph a copy of whatever his latest bestseller was. He's an impressive young man. He's now working as part of Harvard's humanist chaplaincy and indeed seems to have a book deal. 
Chris defines himself as a secular humanist who does interfaith work. And indeed, much of what he talks about is the need for atheists and agnostics to be at the interfaith table. He feels that by holding on to the secular label himself and engaging with interfaith voices across the country, he can build understanding of what it means to be secular or non-religious while also building bridges between the secular and religious worlds. I find his work especially exciting because I notice very little shouting in it. Now, I don't mean for us to be wishy-washy. Taking a stand on moral issues is one thing, and I don't expect to stop advocating that when I feel there's a need for a voice on the side of justice. But taking a stand on beliefs, or at any rate letting the stridency of your beliefs define the totality of where you stand, is much trickier. Somehow we have to make sure that we keep building bridges across the divides, even if we are worried about our footing and wish we could just stay on our side, comfortable and safe. Now, of course, we need folks on the other side to build their own bridges, or at least reach out a hand and catch the other end of the rope that we send across. I don't have the answers on how to make that happen, but my guess is it definitely doesn't involve shouting. It's possible it actually involves more sort of boring blogs. Certainly, it involves more thoughtful conversations with a wider range of individuals. I feel as though half of my platforms end with me saying, essentially, please talk to each other and to the people around you. I do apologize if that gets boring, and I will stop saying it when the whole nation has begun to understand each other. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Of course, it's hardly fair to ask you to have difficult conversations without any thoughts on how to do that. I think Wes does a pretty good job, actually, of helping people with difficult conversations. Mary wrote about being in good relationship in last month's newsletter article, and many of you have benefited from taking relationship-building classes, NVC workshops, and other offerings here focused on how we can be with each other when we disagree. And I'm often inspired hearing your stories about the bridges that you have built, the people that you thought you could never have anything in common with, but when you started talking just a little bit, you found that, in fact, there was something. I had that experience in seminary one day that particularly shines out for me. I was in a class on ethics, which was an especially challenging course for me, the one non-Christian in the room. All semester, I had been trying to explain where I found my ethical grounding and coming up against what I thought were some pretty fundamentalist views. There were moderate and progressive Christians in the class, too, but plenty of people who thought, among other things, that divorce was never justifiable and that all non-Christians were going to hell regardless of how they lived their lives. It was fun. One student in particular had been grumbling from the row behind me all semester about the theory of evolution and the damage caused by the Enlightenment. <laughs> and frankly... I had written him off as someone I wouldn't ever connect with, and of whom, to be honest, I was a little bit scared. Scared to speak too loudly about what I believed, what I thought. Then one day the class got into a conversation about poverty, race, and class differences, and suddenly I heard from behind me this student saying, well, you know, I'm sure Amanda and I agree on this, and he went on to say something about the need for a government safety net that I did, indeed, agree with. 
The revelation for me was not so much that we agreed on something, although that was a revelation, but that this student, who seemed so different from me, so alien to my belief system, had been listening to me well enough to know that we would agree. I hope that I listen that well sometimes. I hope I feel brave enough to speak my truth while listening for another truth at the same time. And I hope we all do that so well that people say, those ethical culturists, they surely know how to build bridges, and I want to walk across. <laughs>